0: This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Hone your development skills at learn.thoughtbot.com. Giant robots smashing into other giant robots.
1: Hello everybody and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast. My name is Ben Orenstein. I'm here today with Brett Van Zijden. How's it going, Brett? Going well. Uh, so you created a company called File Picker and a lot of things happened in between and
0: then you sold it and then went to IFT, right? That is correct. That is, although at one point it was named the name of the company actually started as CloudTop um, and eventually turned into Inc. But the name that most people know us as is Filepicker.io. Right. Gotcha. And I'm saying the the if to write
1: IFTTT. That is correct. Yep. Gotcha. Cool. Three T's. Three T's. That's right. So let's rewind. Let's start at the beginning part of the timeline. Then, what is
0: Filepicker and what was it like in the early days? Sure. So. Sort of give two answers to that question. There was sort of the high level change the world vision that we wanted, which was, you know, looking at the number of different applications and services that people used and saying, how can we connect these better together? Like back in the 90s when everything was Microsoft, everything could sort of plug into each other. And that was, you know, cool in some ways, but it was you know, really annoying that everything was only made by Microsoft and there wasn't as much innovation. And now we have, millions of different apps, millions of different services, people using Dropbox or Google Drive or Box or whatever it is. And the thought was, you know, how can we, how can we embrace that diversity, but still connect everything? So mm-hmm. that was that was sort of the original idea, this like internet operating system type thing that connected all the stuff. And what we ended up building that I think people really liked and that was sort of a step along that direction was a file uploader. Mm-hmm. Um, and specifically a file uploader that connected into Dropbox and Flickr and GitHub and all these different things. And so our notion was, hey, you know, rather than every single developer having to build these integrations themselves and deal with these APIs, if all they wanted was to allow their users to upload files, like why don't we bundle all that up? And why don't we give them a single way of just saying I need an image, take care of the rest, right?
1: That ended up being pretty popular, and it turned into a business that went well. The the sort of the the take over the world thing didn't happen quite as much, though, right?
0: Uh, Yeah. So the the story um, sort of we started out of MIT. There was uh, four of us there, Mm -hmm. and before we even graduated, we went out to Palo Alto, set up a house, did the whole Y Combinator thing, Mm -hmm. and um, sort of what standard practice is these days of Put something out there, see how people react to it, and then iterate on it. So, you know, just seeing how people use the tool, build it on, built on new features, new capabilities, and eventually ended up with, you know, a a pretty dang good way of uploading files. And I think that's what got people excited. People said, "Look, I've built 100 million file uploaders in my life, and I don't want to deal with." Internet Explorer, eight issues, and I don't want to have to deal with streaming multi-part uploads for files over 10 megabytes. You know, there's just a lot of cruft there mm-hmm. that we took care of.
1: It, it's interesting how many businesses there are lurking in the like things
0: developers have done a bunch of times and don't really like doing. Uh, the, the term of art is schlep work. Uh, schlep, so, yeah. if, if you can find things that really no one likes to do. I mean, I think Stripe is a sort of canonical example. Like, no one ever liked dealing with payments. And so if you do that in a way where one company does all the schlep work, Mm -hmm. um, and then everyone else gets the benefit, it's not only usually a pretty good way to run a business, it's also like a pretty good service for the world. Like, you're you're making everyone more efficient with their time. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen people complain. I guess it's complaints or just sort of maybe lament potentially that, like these days, development is becoming sort of more and more like gluing pieces together, and you are mostly sort of writing glue code as opposed to like unique things. Which I guess is sort of like a one of those byproducts of more and more of the problems, of the basic problems, the common problems are solved for you, and so you can, you pull those pieces in, and you of course have to write a little bit of glue code to make that happen. But then you actually get, I think, the net benefit is you get to focus more on the things that are unique about what you are building.
0: Oh, 100%. I think the one of the more interesting pieces I've read in a while was Instagram talking about how they scaled up. And one of the the poignant pieces they said is focus on what is the one thing that you want to do better than anyone else Mm -hmm. and invest all your resources in that and Mm -hmm. For Instagram, it was speed, right? It was how do we make it so that we upload these photos as fast as possible, and make that you know, not only on the technical side very fast, but even on the design side, the perceived latency, some of the like tricky things they did about background uploading while you were adding filters. Right. And so, to me, the notion of you know if your if your product isn't about doing payments or uploading files or even, you know, the ops work of something like Heroku, like focus on the thing that makes you awesome. And then the rest, yeah, just plug and play different services.
1: Mm -hmm. That's a really interesting way of thinking about building a business
0: is like picking that thing. Yeah. What are you going to obsess about? Yeah. What's the thing that you care about? And for us, a lot of that was developer experience. Mm You know, for instance, we were hosted on AWS because... We didn't need to rack our on hardware. Um, you know, we used CDNs. We you know we used all these different services. Yep. We used Stripe because it was great. And we said, let's put all this energy into making it so, you know, we can solve a problem for other people, which is uploading files. It's
1: it's nice to have that focus too, because it lets you answer questions. Because there's so many times where like there's a couple good options for you know what you're gonna do next, or how you're gonna have a feature work, or you know any of the million questions that come up. And if you have one or two overarching goals like we're going to be amazing at this then it helps you answer those questions
0: 100% the the other interesting thing is you know if you can predict it it also helps you define the scope of the business right so we focused 100% on dealing with the file upload problem and the file upload problem is a thing that a lot of people have but not necessarily that large companies have like if we were going to go to Google or large software companies so mm-hmm if we were going to go to google and say hey we'll solve your file uploading problem they'd say nah like mm-hmm. that's fine <laughs> mm-hmm. but on the other hand if we went to you know some of our bigger customers like the food network right so like they use it because they're going to be focused on other things and so file uploading is a problem that they're more than happy to give off to other people so i think when you when you think about your business as we're going to solve you know exactly one problem When you pick that problem, it also defines the scope of how large this business is going to become. Right? Is it going to be focused more on large enterprises or more on you know mom and pop shops that maybe have one contract developer that's helping them out part time, but they don't want to like you know anything that they can do to to reduce the number of engineering hours. That's what they want to do. Yeah, absolutely.
1: So you keep you keep using this phrase of like just defining the scope of the business. Mm-hmm. So with File Picker, you sort of, it turned out the scope was maybe not enough for like a venture funded, grow fast, take over the world kind of thing, right?
0: Uh-huh. Can you expand on that? Sure, sure. So I think one of the, the best articulations of this was one of our advisors talking to them and they actually, they run a software company and they're saying, you know, the reason why we use Stripe is because it takes over a division of our business. Mm-hmm. You know, we had, five, 10 people that were dealing with payments and all the different currencies and things like that. Mm-hmm. The reason why we use Heroku is it takes over the ops division of our business. It actually, it's not just a few people for a couple of months, it's a full-fledged division. And I think there's something to be said about a sort of Heroku for files type idea. You know, not just the file uploading, but the entire asset pipeline. Everything from, you know, how do images come in to them being resized to them being cdn um, you know, doing video transcoding and sort of providing a full asset pipeline, I think there's enough there to make a large scale, you know, 100, 200 million dollar business. The question for us was, was that the business that we wanted to do? And having seen some success with the file picker product, we looked at it and said, you know, let's try to get back to our roots. let try to get back to where we started in wanting to create this sort of internet operating system, this idea of connecting all these different products and that's where we went along the, the ink route, spent some time doing that. Uh, there's you know even more learnings there. And then ultimately we decided that we wanted to, to move on and focus on other things while still allowing the file picker product to serve our customers and things like that. Hmm.
1: So you, you failed in the sense that you built a good business that was helping people. It just wasn't big enough.
0: <laughs> uh, it was the the business that the market needed was not necessarily the business that we wanted to be in mm-hmm. um, or felt inspired by long term. And the size of what we had wasn't, you know, to, to go from what we had to a hundred million dollar business would have been a, an amazing amount of work and would have really required a team that absolutely loved it and woke up day in, day out thinking about how they can build this asset pipeline. And we figured you know our time was we'd rather work on things that we absolutely love doing that we wake up in the morning and we're passionate about
1: so you say you, you weren't inspired by that so was was the big th- reason for that just your own personal passions as a team or was it because you know you had venture you know investors that were looking for a certain return like what's what's the breakdown there
0: it really was it was the team it was the the feeling that when we got into this and this was actually an interesting learning for us and uh, you know, I'd encourage if anyone's listening and they're they're developing a product that sort of spans developers or user facing elements. When we got into the business, we wanted to do it to impact the user experience of working with applications. We wanted to change the the way that people interacted with applications and, and connect them in a much more seamless way. To do that, we ended up creating a developer product and it really took a probably a good year, year and a half in for us to really have this honest conversation amongst the team. Mm-hmm. Say, well, who do we primarily want to benefit? At the end of the day, you know, when we look back in 10 years, do we want to create a, a company that is infrastructure? Or do we want to create a company that has the much more user-facing component? Do we care that we walk down the street and someone knows the name of our company? And the answer to that was yes, We we did care that that just building infrastructure, just building this sort of piping in the background was not something that we wanted to do for five, 10 years. And I think that was something that it took a while for us to, to come to terms with, um, that we had built this very developer-focused product and we ended up building you know, a good developer-focused product, but that wasn't where we wanted to necessarily head long-term. And so part of that, it, it created conflicts. You, know, you mentioned one of the great things about having a singular focus, is that it allows you to prioritize features. And we found ourselves there'd be times when developers would be asking, hey, we want this white labeling. We want you know, X, Y, or Z. And we looked at it and said, well, that doesn't really fit with our overall long-term vision. Mm-hmm. Which part of the thing that excited me about selling it to someone else was they would be able to say, no, 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 100%. Like We want to treat these developers like they're gods. We want to give them everything that they need um, rather than, you know, does this align with our long-term vision?
1: Mm-hmm. Do you feel like you're more on track now with the, what, what you want to do of changing the world and being a
0: household name and all that? I think so. I think so. So for the people who know me um, and had heard me talk about a lot of things that I wanted to do, when they heard I went over to IFT, they were like, oh, that makes total sense. Mm-hmm. We actually knew them. I knew their CEO. And that's sort of how I got placed there while we were running Filepicker. Because our ideas were very much aligned, but our approaches were different. And so we were focused on the developer route and integrating with apps. They were very focused on the consumer route and getting to you know, tens of millions of users. And so when I looked at it and said, OK, what do I do, want to do next to still you know, pursue this vision? It was pretty clear that I wanted to go there. Hmm. People might not know. Do you want to do the, the quick elevator pitch for Ift? Sure. I've only been there for uh, about a month or so, so I, okay. uh, I may not get the wording precisely right. But the notion with Ift is to allow, If stands for if this, then that. Um, and it's to create these, what are called recipes, that are simple connections between the apps that people use. So you can say, if someone tags me in a photo on Facebook, save it to Dropbox. Mm-hmm. If I arrive at my house, turn on my thermostat. If it's going to rain tomorrow, send me a text message. And so yeah, I think there's hundreds of these what are called channels, these sort of things that you can plug in, and in some ways, it's, it's this idea of recipes are like these like little mini apps, these little mini bite-sized pieces of technology that people can connect the different services they want into something that's useful for them.
1: Yeah, to me, it's like bringing programming to the masses in a way. To, to a technical audience, that's a very uh, effective way of describing it. Yeah, because it's such a superpower to be able to program things, like such a superpower. And uh, giving people you know, th- this much of it, I think, is is awesome.
0: When I think about what an API does, especially for someone who writes code, it basically surfaces all the functionality that an application or service has. And allows you to configure it and mix and match it in whatever way is appropriate for you. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's a really exciting, as you say, superpower to give to people. You know, I could write something that hooks into the Facebook API and hooks into Dropbox and does these things automatically. But I sort of want it to be just drag and drop. Even as someone who can write code, I just I want it to be much easier. And for someone who can't write code, it does feel like magic. It feels like a superpower. hmm
1: yeah, even as someone that yeah, like you said, that does write code, it's it's nice to have like a click that, click this, and now you're you're done, rather than writing the code. That's honestly pretty boring
0: as far as code goes, like connecting these things together. Yeah, and and to be fair, we're honest with it, right? We're honest that we don't support you know every possible use. There are going to be things where, of course, you want to write code for it. You know, if I'm tagged in this post and it's a picture of. You know, a Brazilian monkey then posted on Instagram. No, like we, you know, we we don't allow you to define all the parameters. This isn't a programming language, mm-hmm. uh, but it is these sort of bite-sized pieces of technology. Mm-hmm.
1: So you're a project manager.
0: I am program manager. Program manager. Yeah. What's the difference? A product manager. Sorry. Oh, oh, it's I know I know all these different things. I say it's PM, uh, <laughs> which and and we'll we'll leave the P and the M undefined. Um, okay. It's essentially, how do we go from, here's an idea for the business. You know, how can we allow these recipes to be more useful to people on a daily basis? And exploring that, determining you know, what changes we may need to make, and then going all the way from that through launch. So mm-hmm. it's you know, taking high-level, nebulous ideas about something that should be done or could be done, mm-hmm. fleshing it out, and then actually leading it through implementation, working with the engineering team to get it built. Okay, so
1: are you actually writing code then,
0: or no? I uh, I made the determination. This is actually something that I ended up doing at Filepicker as well. Once the team was a certain size, I said I'm not writing production code. I built a lot of the core pieces of Filepicker. I enjoy. I'm an engineer by background, but for me, writing code was always a means to an end. Mm-hmm. It was always I want to instantiate these ideas I have mm-hmm. uh, and allow you know allow people to use it. But the actual process of engineering, of dealing with large-scale problems, was not something that really excited me. And so when I say non-production code, I'll prototype things. I'll, you know, was sketching out, hey, how is it going to feel to interact with this flow in a certain way? Maybe I'll make a keynote mock-up, or maybe I'll just code something up in HTML and CSS and JavaScript. And then we'll hand that over to people who actually productionize it and, you know, think through all the actual hard problems underlying there. But, uh you know, I think the best sort of product requirements document is a prototype.
1: Hmm. Yeah, totally agree. It's, it's interesting to me, I'm, I'm just seeing a little bit of a theme here where you left file picker because it didn't excite you. And you stopped coding because it didn't exactly excite you. And it's interesting to see how driven you are by, you know, you seem to have a clear vision of what you want to do, and a pretty good knack for
0: getting away from the stuff you don't want to and diving into the things you do. And, and I'm very fortunate because of that. I think the day and age we live in, especially being technologists, affords us this opportunity to say, I'm gonna work on what I absolutely love to do. If mm-hmm. I love writing you know, Go co-routines, awesome. There's a place for me that I can just go do that. And that's super exciting. And it's a very similar feel as what we were talking about earlier about you know, building businesses via plugging in different pieces. It's a similar thing with people, right? Find the thing that you're absolutely passionate about and then go for it. That's what I've tried to do. Mm-hmm. My goal, uh, I heard this from a friend of mine. My goal is to never work a day in my life. You're just, but, you're just playing and stuff you like. Oh, yeah, just doing the stuff you like. You wake up in the morning. you know. And that's not to say that there aren't hard problems and frustrating times and things like that. but if you're doing it right, I think you, uh, hey, you wake up in the morning, you're happy that you do.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I've been I was rereading uh, the four hour work week recently. And it's one of like the core assumptions in there is like, you hate your job. And so let's figure out how you can minimize the amount of time you spend working so that you can go do stuff you actually like. Yeah. And you know, when I read that uh, many years ago, I was like, yeah, absolutely. This is totally on. And I read that, you know, a couple of days ago, and I was like, I kind of, I don't hate my job at all, actually. Like, I'm doing what I want to do. Like, what would I do if I, you know, had, you know, infinite financial freedom was like kind of this, actually.
0: Yep. So Uh, I feel insanely lucky that that's true. There's a, apparently, this is a a quote attributed to Mark Zuckerberg when Yahoo approached Facebook for a billion dollars to buy them. And Mark was apparently talking to the board and they're like, well, I think we should really take this. And, you know, this is a meaningful amount of money. Mark made a lot of money on this. And he's like, yeah, but, You Know if you gave me a hundred million dollars today and took away Facebook, you know what I would do? I'd go build Facebook again. He's like, I like, he's like, I like, I want this thing to exist, Mm -hmm. so it doesn't really matter. Like, I I want this to exist, I love what I'm doing, so why would I stop doing it? Right. And that's not to say, I think, you know, again, I'm very fortunate that I found something that I am so inspired by and I found something I am so passionate about because there are a lot of people who work for a living. And that, you know, they work so that they can do the things they do outside of work. So that, you know, yep. I have a, an Aikido instructor who loves doing Aikido. And, you know, he he wants to get away with doing as little work, you know, for a job as possible because he does what he loves. Yeah, it's pretty awesome to be in, in this position, I think. Like, there, there are a lot of
1: fields that you can be passionate about, but they don't support, like, a full-time, you know, mm-hmm. type of income. Yeah. So, we're, we're lucky.
0: You mentioned Aikido. What hobbies do you have? Is that a big one? <laughs> um, so, one of the things for the year and a half or 2 years or so while we were heads down on FilePicker I really did nothing else and it was you know it was a full-time 7 days a week type thing and that was great it was very satisfying to the soul was, I was I was very content I wasn't necessarily happy all the time you know there's mm-hmm. times I was stressed out but I was very content and then as we started looking to transition the business all of a sudden I started having a lot more time because you know I was working 10 hours a day instead you know i had weekends Mm -hmm. and so i started looking at other things i wanted to do so certain things i've started doing salsa dancing dancing i've always been big into salsa Mm. Um, it's a fun thing Mm -hmm. i'd like to do some more rock climbing we'll see if that fits in i've started reading more i don't know i just i feel like i'm trying to be more intentional about the hobbies that i have and the things that i do outside of work Um, and i actually find it makes me more productive at work
1: Mm. what do you like to read
0: so I started reading more fiction recently um, before I was reading a lot of, you know, as I transitioned from engineering to more management side, I started, you know, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Mm-hmm. Bill Walsh had a good book on uh, management. I started reading Loblita actually, just the other day. So mm-hmm. sort of starting taking, taking down the you know, Time 100 books. Oh, nice. So, yeah. Cool. So what was uh, doing Y Commander like? So I I guess at the high level, fantastic experience. So there's two major things that we got out of YC. One was being surrounded by a phenomenal number of other startups Mm -hmm. and all just like super driven, super intense people who also – Wanted to go change the world, and I think you know some of our batch now is actually you know achieving that and is in a position where they're doing really exciting things. Instacart is one of them. Coinbase is one of them. Uh, you know, some of these names that are, are now very big companies. And so when you're in a room with those people, it's it's incredibly energizing um, mm-hmm. and it's incredibly focusing. And everyone there, you know, it's not competitive. They don't they don't pitch you against each other in any way. But when you're sitting there and someone says, hey, you know, we increased the amount of revenue we make in a month by 10% last week. And you go, well, crap, like we only (laughs) did 8%. Like, like, no, next week we're going to be 12% just to compete, you know. And so there was sort of that friendly camaraderie and that friendly competition that I think drives a lot of the products and a lot of the companies forward.
1: That makes such a huge difference, I think. Like, the people you surround yourself with, it just sets, it sets what you think of as normal. Mm-hmm. Like you said, like, okay, well, we, we thought we were happy with 8%, you know, in a week, but, but no, it's, that's not good enough, because these guys are, are beating us over here. Yep. I used to play um, a lot of volleyball, and we had this guy who joined us from, he used to play at, like, this really, really high level. He was from Brazil, and he would just destroy everybody, because he was, you know, used to competing at much, much, against much stronger players, and over time, you could watch him get worse. Like, he yep. stopped having to jump as high to get over the block, so he didn't because it's a little bit tiring. And he stopped hitting quite so accurately because, you know, the, the defense wasn't quite so good. And, like, you, just, you could see this guy, his play
0: degrade over time. Yep. That's why you have to work with phenomenal people, right? It's like, so you don't, like, uh ah, well, I'll just, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that was awesome. The other side of it was, as a, as a developer tools company, as a product selling things to developers, we could not have asked for a better starting mm. customer base. Right, right? You, you go out, and if you can build something that YC companies want to use, that was a pretty good starting base. And we could actually sit there and talk with them and say, hey, you should use this. And they said, eh, no, unless it does, blah, blah. We Go right. back and build it and say, now use it. They say, okay. And then we could actually even work back the chain of YC companies and start working with bigger and bigger companies. Right? Right. So there was our batch that was all just like fresh startups and then, you know, you go back two years and you're talking to Airbnb and you're talking to SurveyMonkey and like, you're, you know, some of these things where you can actually scale up the size of the company just by going back in time That's with cool. Y Combinator classes. Yeah. So that was super useful for us. A little more niche, you know, just to the developer tools market, but uh was super helpful. Hmm. Do you have any regrets about that time period? Um, not really. I mean, I... You know, when people ask, like, oh, well, you have to, you know, it's a 7% equity. It's like, no, that's not really. I would 100% do YC again. Mm -hmm. I wish I made better friends there, I guess. I Like some of my really good friends now are from that period. And our batch was, we were the summer 2012 batch, which was the largest one up until the current one. So we were 84 companies. Mm -hmm. Um, This was before they had sort of figured out how to scale it as well. And so we, I didn't really know all the people. And in fact, there'll be times this happened the other day where I met a buddy of mine's roommate and we were talking about what he did and what I did. And we were like, wait a minute, I think we were in the same class. Mm. <laughs> like, and like, these are great people that are doing interesting things that I would love to be better friends with. And, you know, just cause you're so focused on the company and what you're doing and trying to get ready for demo day, you don't have as much time to, to make friends with some of the other people, but mm-hmm. it's not a real regret. I mean, it's, you know. It was a conscious trade-off that we made to work harder on the company and spend less time you know, with our batchmates. But it would have been fun. Mm.
1: So you, you made the transition from being an engineer to doing this uh, P, whatever PM stands for. Whatever PM stands for, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm finding myself sort of in that position these days. And I, I'm sure it happens to a, a fair amount of developers as they move mm. along in their career. Do you have any advice?
0: So there's a there's a number of things that we can chat in here. One is going from an engineer to being to starting a company being the CEO. So like that's a whole experience in and of itself. There's going from CEO to working for the first time in an organization that I don't run, right? So I came directly out of school to being a CEO, mm. which is all sorts of interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's also, you know, when I when I realized that I wanted to get into product management or, you know, sort of the general PM term, I decided I wanted to be the first PM at a company. I wanted to go into an organization that was, you know, being led by a CEO and figuring out how to scale from a CEO that's making all the product decisions to, you know, as that gets to a a team of a hundred people, how does that product organization build out? So that was something that I was excited by. I was interested. So I can jump into all of those or any of those or, you know, whatever... More fun. Yeah, talk about that most recent one. Okay. What that's like. Um or how to be good at it. Sure. What do I need to know? Oh, I'm still learning. Trust me. This is a lifelong process. One of the first things that you learn is humility. Um, uh, that just like the a big part of the job is filling in white space. Mm. A big part of the job is figuring out what are we not thinking of? What are we not working what's not working well? Who's not in this conversation that I should represent their viewpoint? One of the interesting things for me along that line, you know, I came in sort of full of vim and vinegar, ready to, to go and like change how things were done and, you know, provide value. Mm-hmm. And I thought, hey, you know, I'm, I'm the first person hired on as a PM. You know, I carry with me in my head all these ideas of what that entails. Show up on the first day and realize that actually there are people who they may not be officially PMs. They may not want to be doing that long-term, but there is a full process for how things go from an idea to a a released product. And there are some people that, you know, love doing that or don't like doing that. And so a lot of it was just figuring out how are things working currently. Um, I was giving advice to a friend of mine who's also, she's going to be the first PM over at another startup. And it's like, hey, you know, spend some time and learn how they're doing things. Because your first reaction might be, oh, this is all wrong. You know, this isn't how proper agile methodology does it you know you're sort of coming in with all these preconceived notions of how a company should be run or how a product process should be run Mm -hmm. and understand that a lot of it has worked so far and there may be small little tweaks or small little adjustments that you can make or just gradual things that you can do or sometimes there's a problem with the process but really it's not a big deal that Mm -hmm. you know it maybe isn't the the optimal way to do it but it gets along fine and spend time doing other things. So, you know, a lot of I guess one recommendation starting out would be don't focus on process um, or sort of gradually adjust a process, and instead focus on providing value by looking into data by mm-hmm. running. You know, one of the things I did in the first few weeks was say, "Hey, let's go schedule a few user interviews." Part of this was for me, but part of this was just. You know, hey, let's record some people using the product. These weren't super targeted or anything like that. It was just, let's, get to, you know, let's hire some task rabbits, pay them 25 bucks, have them spend an hour in a room with us where we videotape them learning about and using the product for the first time. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing what people do. And a lot of this was stuff that people on the team wanted to do or knew they wanted to do or knew they should be doing. Right. But there was no one who was specifically assigned to that role. And so there's white space and, you know, you can just jump in and fill that white space. So that was mm-hmm. fun. And over time, that also helps you, you know, not only provide value, but also establish a sense of your role, right? You're the engineers can then come to you and say, hey, how do you think we should be thinking about this? You know, we're, I'm designing this feature, I'm building this out. I know you did those user studies. You know, how did people react to this search box behaving in this way? How do, mm-hmm. what do you think we should? And. Sort of slowly insert yourself into the organization that way mm. a big part too is you know learning how to work with the CEO right a in in a lot of organizations, the CEO is the product person. they are the one who defines the product roadmap and how things get built and deciding when good enough is good enough, and figuring out how to work with that relationship and how to allow them to scale mm-hmm. is also super interesting, and to be honest, a, you know an in progress challenge yeah are you familiar with the term managing up i am i actually i don't like it mm. um i prefer the concept of like hey let's just have open conversations about what's working and what's not working yeah and then figure out things from there hmm. do you have any other examples
1: of the white space i think that user testing is a great example you know being the person that goes off and
0: grabs some data maybe get some numbers behind something i think that's also great Have anything else like that Sure. I can, we can jump into there. So it's not just getting the data. It's also surfacing it in a very visible way. It's starting to, you know, there's a whole conversation that we have around data, which is like, okay, so I'm assuming most people these days are collecting things in Google Analytics or mm-hmm. Mixpanel or, or what have you, right? Mm-hmm. There's There's lots of tools for collecting information. The question is, are you actually using that data? Are you surfacing it? Are you just recording it and then you know, someone can look at a graph occasionally, or is this something that's being surfaced on a day-to-day basis? Hmm. One of the things that we inserted in that I would highly encourage anyone doing a startup to do is have at your stand-up, at whatever you have on a daily basis, surface an interesting fact of the day. Hmm, I like that. And say like, hey, so, you know, yesterday the number of people who created a recipe from using search was 35%. And that's up... 10% 10% over the last month mm-hmm. why like let's have a conversation about it and you know, you can take five minutes 10 minutes and just surface an interesting fact it can be a good thing it can be a bad thing it can be an i don't know thing surface it hmm. i think that's cool
1: i'm gonna steal that
0: yeah um all this is public domain <laughs>
1: <laughs> you're not gonna hit me for a patent infringement
0: uh, eventually we'll see if it okay. catches on then you know i'll get litigious once but, i'm big uh, enough yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's one interesting back of the day is a great one. A big thing, too, is taking all the ideas that people have in their heads about everything about, hey, there's this project that someone did that's, you know, analyzing user behavior in this way, but only one person knows it and it's not documented anywhere. Like sit down with that person Tease out all the information about how the project runs, put it in a readme, and throw it up there. Hmm. You know what are you know, People have ideas for what we should be working on next. Great, awesome, let's pull those together. Start writing them down. Let's start writing down what our assumptions are. Let's start validating these assumption, those assumptions. So just sort of sucking the ideas that people have and writing them down and putting them on paper mm-hmm. is a big thing. I like creating artifacts. I like creating these sort of like shared documents where, okay, we can talk about new user acquisition all we want, but let's write down some concrete things that we want to test, that we want to look at, that we want to run experiments on. Yep. More things on data. When you're releasing a new feature, get into the habit of writing down how you think the numbers are going to move and by when. Hmm. And then in three weeks or however long, look back at the numbers and say, did they move in that way? I think you know startups go through this period where they start off, and we were very much this way as well, Start off very vision-driven, Start off saying, hey, this is how we want the world to look, this yeah. is what we're gonna do. And everyone knows that by the time you get to 500 people you should be much more data-driven, but no one really knows how to get from here to there. Hmm. And the way that, that we talk about it and the way that I like thinking about it is, okay, first, you know, stay vision-driven, but start surfacing the data that you have and how the decisions you're making are influencing that data. And then I think over time you get into this point where you say, "Hey, I have these ideas. We know that if we implement an idea, it's going to change the numbers. So why don't we run some smaller scale? Why don't we A/B test this? Why mm-hmm. don't we sort of get in this more data-driven process?" Are you bringing some of that stuff to IFT? Trying to slowly. I mean, it's it's one of these things where again, you know, humility. The the things that have worked are working, and it's and it's something as we go from. 20 people to 25 to 35 to 50 to 100 people. We know we're going to have to start introducing some of these things. Yep. And some of the ideas we have will work, and some won't work, and we'll play with it. Cool.
1: So, is there anything I uh, haven't asked you about that you want to talk about?
0: I guess uh, I'm just trying to think here. I think one of the one of the big things for us, and I guess you know, if anyone's out there. Uh, thinking about startup things or thinking about, you know, if they're in a company that's not going well or is going well, you know, there, there's a lot of rhetoric and a lot of emphasis put on sort of fail fast and, you know, try an idea. If it's not working, move on to other things. And I think there's some validity to that, but I also think there's some validity to the idea of sticking something out Mm -hmm. and doing everything you can do to make it work. And if it's not working, find a clean way to exit it, and oftentimes you can do a lot better than just shutting the thing down. And that was something, especially for developer and infrastructure-related products. Mm-hmm. If you shut down, you're taking down thousands of people's sites, or you're you're making the you know even if you say okay, well we'll give you a month or two months, people have to scramble. You know, not everyone has developers on hand that can go and make these changes. Yeah. So really think, I and mean, and there are a lot of people. That if you have something that people want, try to find someone who wants to buy that. And, and you know, if honestly, if you're out there and you're listening and you need someone, you know, we went through this process of selling not as an acqui hire, but as a business, and we mm-hmm. sold the business. And actually, we sort of did a reverse acqui hire, where the team went off and did other things, and the company, the the technology, the customer base stayed with the exist- or with the acquirer. So. That's, you know if you're interested in doing something like that, I'm more than happy to put people in contact with who we did because I do think it's it's an important thing for the startup ecosystem to not just kill these products if people use them, people rely on them, but try to keep them going.
1: Mm. Briefly, because I, I want to let you go. But how did you find the acquirer?
0: Um, <laughs> just hustle. Just it's it's one of these things where you know we went out and we talked to you know we talked to Google, we talked to Dropbox, we talked to all the big players, and. For them, they looked at it and said, hey, you know, we'd love to acquire the team, but mm-hmm. we don't want the product. Like, you know, doing, you know, however much revenue we were doing was not going to be a significant amount to them. And so we needed to find an individual or a small team. Uh, we looked at consulting shops. We looked mm-hmm. at individuals and just basically through talking to people and saying, hey, we have this company. People like the product. We're looking to sell do you know anyone? Just yeah. You do that enough time, and you get connected with some of the right people and make things happen. Gotcha. So. Cool. Do you have anything you want to plug before we go? Um, so I do know. I was. I promised that I would do this. We are hiring over at IFT. Um What are you looking for? Basically, people that are interested in, in running this infrastructure and building the sort of back-end Ruby. So we're all Ruby. We have some node in there, and we're looking at other things, but primarily Ruby. And the exciting thing to me is... I mean, you're, you're building this, this glue layer. You're building this, this layer between all the different services that people use. So if you're excited about APIs, it's an awesome place to be. And doing all that in real time and in a like, super low latency way so that it feels magical is pretty hard. Um, I have a huge amount of respect for the, the engineering team. And you know, if you're interested in joining them, obviously, uh, we're always hiring. Awesome. Cool. So uh, today's show was produced and edited by
1: Tom Obarski. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giant robots slash 108. Thanks for listening.